Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our July 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Persons with dementia are often agitated. Agitation is a condition that is highly connected to unmet needs, such as loneliness, boredom, or pain. Past research has suggested that non-pharmacological interventions addressing unmet needs may decrease agitation. Little is known, however, about factors determining the success of these interventions. In a study supported by the National Institutes of Health, researchers investigated whether the success of non-pharmacological interventions depends on characteristics of the person who has dementia, such as demographic, medical, and functional features, and on treatment delivery-related variables, such as staff barriers. The study included 89 participants with dementia who were living in nursing homes and displaying agitation. Non-pharmacological interventions were unique for each participant matched to his or her personal unmet needs. Results showed that agitation decreased significantly for persons with higher levels of cognitive functioning, activities of daily living, speech, communication, and responsiveness, but with low levels of pain. In addition, agitation decreased significantly if there were no nursing home staff barriers for delivering the intervention. Demographic variables were not related to the effect of non-pharmacological interventions. In sum, the findings of this study point to the need for systemic changes to reduce staff-related barriers and to the need for improved methodologies for increasing the impact of intervention on those at the lowest level of functioning. Anxiety disorders represent a significant public health concern with approximately one-fifth of the United States population each year meeting diagnostic criteria for one or more of these disorders. Anxiety disorders are also among the most treatable mental health conditions, with strong evidence for the efficacy of exposure-based cognitive behavioral therapy as a first-line treatment. Despite the availability of evidence-based psychosocial treatments, barriers such as perceived stigma, high costs, lack of insurance, poor access to treatment, and a relative dearth of clinicians qualified to provide cognitive behavioral therapy mean that many individuals living with anxiety disorders never receive appropriate treatment. In an effort to improve both the accessibility and the affordability of effective treatments, clinical researchers have in recent years developed and tested a number of computer-based cognitive behavioral programs for anxiety disorders. In this meta-analysis, the authors analyzed the collective results of these studies to determine the true efficacy of such programs for anxiety disorders. 
The authors find that the computer-based cognitive behavioral programs significantly reduce anxiety symptoms. These programs are as effective as in-person cognitive behavioral therapy for children and adults and result in lasting treatment gains. Programs that target specific anxiety disorders are more efficacious than those that target anxiety symptoms more broadly. The authors conclude that further research is needed to examine the effectiveness of computer-based cognitive behavioral therapy in real-world settings for individuals with complex clinical presentations and in comparison with more ecologically valid comparison conditions. More research is also needed to determine which specific elements of computer-based cognitive behavioral therapy programs are essential to successful treatment. The dosages and durations of opioid prescriptions have increased many times over in the last 20 years in the United States. These trends parallel proportional increases in adverse consequences, including lethal overdoses and addictions. Mentally ill and addicted people are particularly vulnerable in this prescription drug epidemic. Psychiatric illness and drug-seeking may often be misinterpreted as chronic pain by prescribers who are not trained in behavioral health and many of these patients may be neurobiologically predisposed to addictive disease. In this month's continuing medical education offering, Hackman and colleagues look at the diagnostic utility of a state prescription drug monitoring program database, or PDMP, in an outpatient population seeking treatment at a community mental health center. The study was funded by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. PDMP data revealed that in the year prior to their first evaluation at the center, most of the 201 patients had been exposed to legally prescribed opioids with a mean of 372 pills per patient. One in five were prescribed an opioid and a benzodiazepine simultaneously. While more opioid prescriptions predicted an opioid dependence diagnosis, more prescribers of controlled substances predicted a personality disorder diagnosis. Patients with Medicaid or Medicare were more likely to have been prescribed high-risk regimens of drugs than their uninsured counterparts. These findings suggest the clinical utility of PDMP inquiry as a routine part of psychiatric assessment. Future PDMP studies are warranted to verify the penetrance of high-risk prescribing in other psychiatric populations and to determine how psychiatrists may use these data to inform treatment and improve clinical outcomes. Although people with major depressive disorder share the same diagnosis, individual patients can present very different symptoms and follow different trajectories. Currently, not many guidelines exist that can help clinicians predict how much an individual patient might benefit from treatment. In this article, the authors aim to generate subgroups of patients based on their socioeconomic and clinical background with different chances of benefiting from treatment. They retrospectively analyzed a data set 
of over 2,500 depressed patients from the Sequence Treatment Alternatives to Relieve Depression trial, often referred to as STAR-D. Their study received support from the National Institutes of Health, the APIRE Eli Lilly Psychiatric Research Fellowship, and the Rembrandt Foundation. In the patient sample, the authors analyzed treatment outcome after 12 weeks with open-label citalopram treatment. They used a statistical procedure that allowed subdivision of the total sample into subsamples made up of clinically or demographically similar patients. The resulting subgroups showed meaningful differences in the treatment outcome at 12 weeks. Socioeconomic characteristics such as low income, education, and unemployment were the best variables for identifying subgroups with poor response to citalopram treatment. The authors conclude that socioeconomic factors may be more useful predictors of medication response than traditional psychiatric diagnoses or past treatment history. Recently, lithium has been discussed as a possible agent for disease modification in Alzheimer's disease. However, the safety and tolerability profile of the drug for this purpose has not been thoroughly studied. Renal dysfunction, one of the most important possible adverse effects of lithium treatment, is controversial, even among patients with bipolar disorder. In this article, the authors evaluate the safety and tolerability profile of lithium in subjects with mild cognitive impairment who received low-dose lithium versus placebo to modify clinical and biological factors. Their study was supported by grants from the Alzheimer's Association and two Brazilian government institutions. After four years of follow-up, the authors found no significant differences in renal function between subjects receiving lithium and those receiving placebo. In the lithium group, they observed a significantly higher serum thyroid stimulating hormone and neutrophil count. They also found a mild impairment in daily activities and a higher incidence of diabetes mellitus and arrhythmias. They believe that these secondary findings are clinically marginal. The authors conclude that the use of low-dose lithium among subjects with mild cognitive impairment appears to be safe. Periodic clinical and laboratory-based parameters are important to avoid or detect these adverse effects. Cocaine dependence is a significant public health problem for which there are currently no FDA-approved medications. Buspirone, which is FDA-approved for the treatment of generalized anxiety disorder, has a favorable safety profile and has been found to decrease cocaine self-administration in preclinical research. In a randomized, double-blind pilot trial funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Winhusen and colleagues evaluated buspirone for preventing relapse in 62 cocaine-dependent patients. Participants were recruited from six residential substance use disorder treatment programs that had a local outpatient program to provide treatment post-discharge. All participants received substance use disorder treatment as usually provided at the site. 
participants received either 60 milligrams of buspirone per day or matched placebo for 15 weeks, with weeks 4 through 15 being outpatient treatment. The study results showed no significant treatment effects on maximum continuous days of cocaine abstinence or on days to first cocaine use. Women randomized to buspirone had a significant increase in cocaine use after discharge compared to women receiving placebo. No significant treatment effect on cocaine use was found in the male participants. The results suggest that buspirone is unlikely to have a beneficial effect on preventing relapse to cocaine use and that buspirone for cocaine-dependent women may worsen their cocaine use outcomes. People with mental illness and substance abuse disorders make up just under half of all cigarette smokers in the United States. Similar to patients with schizophrenia, those with bipolar disorder smoke at rates that are two to four times higher than the general population. They are also among the least likely to quit. Patients with bipolar disorder and other mental illness are typically excluded from clinical trials of approved smoking cessation treatments. What's more, rates of morbidity and mortality from smoking-related diseases are higher in patients with bipolar disorder compared to the general population. Therefore, smoking cessation offers one of the best opportunities to reverse the alarming mortality in people with bipolar disorder. In this article, the authors conducted a three-month randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study that evaluated varinacline for smoking cessation in clinically stable bipolar patients. The study was sponsored by the National Institutes of Mental Health and Pfizer. The study subjects were randomized to receive either varinacline or placebo along with medicines they were already using for the maintenance treatment of bipolar disorder. Among the patients who were motivated to quit smoking, 48% who received varinacline quit smoking at the end of the 12-week treatment period. Only 10% of patients who received placebo quit. At the six-month follow-up, 60% of patients who had quit with varinacline relapsed, indicating that patients need longer treatment with varinacline to remain smoke-free. The authors conclude that varinacline has efficacy for initiating smoking cessation in bipolar patients, but clinical vigilance for neuropsychiatric events is advised. Antidepressants, especially those that increase serotonin levels in the brain, have been found in animal studies to foster the generation of new nerve cells in the brain. They can also help in the recovery of cognitive abilities and deficits after stroke in humans. This study was undertaken to evaluate the possibility of similar effects of antidepressants on cognitive functioning of adults with Down syndrome who are at higher risk for dementia. The authors reviewed charts of 357 adults with Down syndrome seen in an outpatient clinic to study the effects of antidepressants on age at dementia onset, longevity, and survival. The analysis controlled for several variables, including the presence of late-onset seizures, a common occurrence in people who develop dementia, 
Trisomy 21 mosaicism and anti-dementia drug use. The study results reveal that antidepressants prescribed for at least 90 days in adults with Down syndrome who were diagnosed with depression appreciably delayed dementia onset compared to those in the study with and without depression who did not take antidepressants. For those who experienced late-onset seizures, the mean survival after these seizures was notably longer than previously reported, 4.23 years versus 1.5 years. The results of the study suggest that antidepressants can sustain or even improve the quality of life in people with Down syndrome by resolving the signs and symptoms of depression. Antidepressants can also preserve the length of intact cognitive functioning by delaying the onset of dementia. At the beginning of the century, several new Alzheimer's agents were starting development, and more effective treatment appeared to be within reach. But in the past decade, no new treatment has been approved for the use of Alzheimer's disease. The July installment of ASCP Corner reviews the approved agents and then looks at the outcomes of research with some promising new agents. Therapies focusing on amyloid protein and tau protein are primarily discussed, as well as a few other treatment strategies that are currently under study. This month's Practical Psychopharmacology column looks at two classes of drugs that have recently been studied as antipsychotic augmentation agents. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, and 5-HT3 receptor antagonists, such as ondansetron. Dr. Andrade discusses the proposed mechanisms and looks at the intriguing results of research conducted so far. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. What is your response when people ask why you chose your specialty? This topic is up for discussion on the Sykes Talk blog. In his blog entry for July 9, 2014, Dr. Joshi talks about why he became a psychiatrist. The field is an unpopular career choice among medical students, but his reasons are compelling. Visit psychiatrist.com and click on the blog link to read Dr. Joshi's opinions. You can browse the blog by author name or keyword, in this case, mental illness. Then, log in to share your thoughts. As publisher of the journal Clinical Psychiatry, it gives me great pleasure to announce the launch of a state-of-the-art online job platform to serve our readers. The CNS Job Market is now open for business at cnsjobmarket.com. Our goal is to serve both job candidates who seek career choices within the CNS arena and employers who seek qualified healthcare professionals. Just as you rely on the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry for trusted content, now you can rely on us for career opportunities and recruitment needs. The CNS job market employs the latest innovative technology to make searching for the right job and the right candidate easier. All services such as resume posting, 
advanced searching, social media integration, and job alerts are free to job seekers. And for employers and recruiters, we offer a range of multimedia advertising opportunities, outreach options, and candidate matching at affordable pricing. Visit us at cnsjobmarket.com, where skilled healthcare professionals and outstanding opportunities meet. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the July issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. <laughs>